Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. As I promised at the end of last episode, we have a very special guest for today's show. Since the show began, we've discussed this counterintuitive concept of defending my enemy. In the civil liberties context, it's a phrase popularized by former ACLU executive director Aryeh Nair in his seminal 1979 book, Defending My Enemy, American Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, and the Risks of Freedom. For those of you just joining the show, this idea of defending my enemy speaks to the even-handed approach civil liberties advocates must take if they wish to secure their fundamental rights. Two episodes ago, we spoke with Virginia v. Black attorney David Baugh about this concept. We also spoke with Glenn Greenwald, who, as you'll recall, spent the early part of his legal career defending the free speech rights of neo-Nazis. And today, we finally get a chance to speak with the man himself, Arye Nair. Thanks for coming on the show. Very glad to be here. Arye, in the civil rights, civil liberties world, has an incomparable resume that spans more than half a century. Arye, you've served as the president of the Open Society Foundations for nearly 20 years. Before that, you helped found Human Rights Watch. And before that, as I mentioned, you worked at the ACLU. And it was during that time that you presided over what has become the reference point for the breadth of America's First Amendment protections, particularly the protections to free speech and assembly. As anyone who has worked in the free speech space long enough knows, when we talk about what it means to have freedom of speech in America, we often talk about how even the Nazis have free speech rights. So let's dive right in. Arye, what exactly happened in Skokie, Illinois in 1977? Well, uh, there was a small group of Nazis in Chicago, and they had tried to exploit racial tensions in the city um, by demonstrating in Marquette Park, an area of Chicago that divided a neighborhood uh, populated mainly by people of East European origin and a neighborhood that was predominantly black. And at a certain point, uh, the city of Chicago obtained uh, a court order barring the Nazis from demonstrating in Marquette Park. And the local uh, ACLU, the ACLU of Illinois, represented the Nazis in that free speech battle over Marquette Park. When they were excluded from Marquette Park, uh, the Nazis were looking for some way to, uh, to uh, continue to attract attention. And so they wrote letters to a number of suburban communities uh, saying that they were going to come to those communities to demonstrate. And most of the communities um, ignored their letters. Uh, Skokie, uh, as one um, uh, suburban uh, community, did not ignore the letter and essentially wrote back saying, don't you dare come here. Uh, and so the, uh, the Nazis responded to the bait uh, and uh, scheduled a demonstration um, in Skokie. And Skokie um, quickly passed a number of ordinances uh, to prohibit the, uh, the Nazi march. Uh, one of them would have uh, prohibited demonstrating in uniform. 
Uh, another would have required posting of a very large bond uh, to pay for any damage uh, resulting uh, from the, uh, the demonstration. And so the Nazis went back to the ACLU of Illinois, which had represented them in the Marquette Park uh, litigation, and asked for legal representation with respect to Skokie. And the ACLU of Illinois agreed and took on the, uh, the case. And this was a pretty easy case for the ACLU to take, right? I mean, it wasn't out of the ordinary for you It wasn't guys. out of the ordinary. Um, I was the national executive director uh, of the ACLU. And if an ACLU affiliate uh, took on uh, a novel case or a particularly significant case, uh, they would always notify the, uh, the national office. But in taking on routine cases, uh, they didn't feel they needed to, uh, to notify the national office. And, and, and the chapter, the people that were working on this case were David Hamlin and David Goldberger? Correct? Yes, David Hamlin was the executive director of the ACLU of Illinois, mm -hmm. and David Goldberger was the legal director of the ACLU of Illinois. And they took the case as a routine matter. And only after they took the case, uh, it began to attract attention. And it attracted attention, from my understanding, because Skokie was a big, a home for a, a large quantity of Jewish immigrants, right? From well, not only Jewish uh, immigrants, but uh, Jewish immigrants who could um, appropriately be characterized as Holocaust survivors. Uh, apparently in a town of about 40,000 people, uh, there were about 700 people who could be characterized as Holocaust survivors. And so this made the, uh, the Skokie case uh, the focus of national attention. And that's how I first heard about the case as the national director of the ACLU. Yeah, well, in 1940, I found it interesting in reading your book, you, the ACLU even put out a leaflet, uh, Why We Defend Civil Liberty Even for Nazis, Fascists, and Communists. So very much not outside the character of the ACLU. This it had been the, uh, the practice of the organization, uh, I would say, um, really from the beginning mm -hmm. to defend free speech for everyone. Yeah. But the response that you're taking your case, as you mentioned, was out of the ordinary. Uh, there was protests. We're here in New York today. Protests at your offices in New York, correct? Well, there was um, an organization called the, uh, the Jewish Defense League. And they were led by uh, a man named Rabbi uh, Meir Kahan. Meir Kahan eventually um, uh, emigrated to Israel, became uh, the leader of a far-right movement within Israel, and was eventually assassinated uh, in Israel. But uh, long before that, um, he had uh, not only demonstrated um, in front of the building where the ACLU had its offices. And where was that in the city? Uh, we had offices at 40th Street and, and Madison Avenue at that moment. Uh, but he also led his followers uh, into the ACLU offices and conducted demonstrations uh, within the office and, in effect, uh, wanted us to call the police. But you didn't. Right? Uh, we didn't call the, uh, the police. Um, uh, we managed to, uh, to get them out of the, uh, the ACLU offices. But they disrupted the place uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And um, they did more than that. Uh, they, uh, they followed me home. 
Um, uh, I hadn't uh, known that they were doing that, but they wanted to know uh, where I lived and uh, conducted uh, demonstrations at my apartment building. And uh, it happened that my apartment building had a garage entrance on a separate street. And uh, for a period, my wife and I were using that garage entrance uh, to go in and out of our building rather than uh, pass the, uh, the demonstrators. Huh. So you didn't mention that in your book, right. but you, you also got many angry letters, right? Yes. And did, did these angry letters from uh, your, the ACLU members, did, it, did this take you by surprise? Yes. Um, it took me by surprise because um, I mistakenly thought that most ACLU members um, knew our practice of defending free speech for anyone, uh, including the, uh, the Nazis. There had been well-publicized uh, cases that I was involved in, that others were involved in, in which we had defended free speech uh, for Nazis. I think uh, what happened was that the ACLU uh, had gotten uh, a large number of new members uh, during the period that Richard Nixon was uh, president. Uh, they were uh, anti-Nixon people. Uh, they didn't really know the history of the organization. They didn't know its practice of defending free speech for, for everybody. And I think a lot of those people were taken by surprise when we defended the Nazis. And I hadn't realized that a lot of these new members didn't understand uh, the history and culture and principles of the organization. Would, there, would you have done anything differently had you no, done that? No, uh, I don't think uh, we would have done anything differently. We might have tried uh, to, uh, to explain what we were doing uh, a little bit earlier in the process, but that's, only, that's the only thing I can think of uh, that we might have done uh, differently. Yeah, you, you talk about in the book, actually, you have a very interesting anecdote that I think speaks to both polls about people's support for free speech during that time, but also polls about people's free speech today. It seems as though people appreciate free speech in the abstract. If you ask them, I, do you support free speech? They'll say yes. Do you support the right to assemble? They'll say yes. And But when you, it's really when you dig down into the specifics about what that actually means that you, you find some people get off the bus, so to speak. And you talk about in your book how you did an interview in Columbus, Ohio, yes. w, or Q-U-B-E, uh, where they had this very interesting technology at the radio station where listeners or viewers, I think it was a TV station, were able to respond either yes or no to specific yes. questions that were asked. And one of the questions was, should everyone be allowed to demonstrate? Uh, and 80% of people responded yes. And then they asked a very specific question, should the Klan be allowed to yes. demonstrate in front of the state capitol? And they said 52% said yes. So you have 48% that said said no. Have you seen that as sort of a thread through your long yes. career? Yes. I, th I think that um, abstractly, almost everybody uh, will say they uphold free speech. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think when it gets down to specific cases and forms of free speech um, are uh, particularly offensive, then uh, quite a lot of people are not willing to uh, to apply the abstract principle. Well, so is this this both 
lack of understanding of free speech principles and the response you got to the Skokie case, is that what prompted you to write your book or is there something else? Do you feel like you needed to explain yourself? I did think that I, I needed to uh, explain myself. Um, uh, first, um, you know, I, I'm Jewish. Uh, mm. I could be described, I haven't thought of myself that way, but I could be described myself as a, a Holocaust survivor. Mm in the sense that I was an infant refugee from uh, Nazi Germany uh, to England. And the fact that the British at that particular moment uh, were generous uh, in admitting uh, refugees from Nazi Germany enabled me to survive. I was too young to have uh, any consciousness of what was taking place in Germany at that point. But the fact that I had been born in, in Berlin during um, Hitler's period uh, made me, um, in, in a sense, uh, a kind of symbol of uh, the, uh, the free speech concerns. And so it seemed to me um, useful for me to, uh, to try to explain myself uh, by, by writing the book. And, and what were some of the arguments, specific arguments, that you thought you needed to address in this book? Well, uh, I think the the basic argument was uh, that um, if the Nazis, uh, with uh, whose free speech I was defending, came to power, um, that uh, free speech could not possibly uh, exist. Mm -hmm. That ultimately, um, it would do a disservice uh, to the uh, the principles that I was trying to uphold. Uh, if one defended um, uh, those persons on the basis of, of those principles. And that argument was made in uh, sophisticated ways and unsophisticated ways mm -hmm. um, during uh, that period, and I felt a need uh, particularly to respond to that. Yeah, you say in your book, it is dangerous to let the Nazis have their say, but it is more dangerous by far to destroy the laws that deny anyone the power to silence Jews if Jews should need to cry out to each other and the world for succor. To you, this, this, this concept of defending my enemy, you don't mean defending your enemy in every way. You mean in no. a very specific way. No, in a very specific way uh, in terms of uh, their freedom to, uh, to express themselves. You, you, say, you say in your book, defending my enemy is the only way to protect a free society against the enemies, enemies of freedom. I want to I dive into something, uh, you know, an interesting, you, you devote a whole chapter into your book. Your book suggests that there were both some people within the ACLU and outside uh, the ACLU and also within Jewish partner organizations who were typically strong in their support for free speech, but who in this case seemed to, uh, their support seemed to crumble. Uh, you mentioned one specific guy, I think Joel Spray. Spray Rankin. Yeah, who you used to work with at the ACLU, who yes. then testified on behalf of the, right. the Skokie ordinances. Why Why was that? You know, why, even amongst people that should presumably know better or have a more nuanced understanding than the general public. Um, it, it's, it's difficult for me to explain uh, somebody else's uh, motivations in, uh -huh. uh, in taking uh, that position. I'd rather speak for themselves, yeah. uh, they speak for themselves, rather than uh, I should try to, uh, to attribute uh, things to them. But uh, I think a lot of people um, are um, particularly concerned with um, 
dangerous uh, forms of speech, dangerous uh, forms of expression, um, when uh, it seems directly to, um, uh, to touch them. And I think he was um, sensitive to, uh, to anti-Semitic um, uh, forms of speech. Uh, there were many other people in the ACLU who were um, unwilling to defend free speech for the Klan. Mm -hmm. And um, we had um, a branch of the ACLU in Mississippi, uh, and we were very uh, pleased by the fact that it was a... Uh, racially mixed um, uh, branch of the ACLU that uh, I think there were um, as many blacks on the uh, the board of the ACLU affiliate uh, as there were whites. Yeah, it was one of your most diverse boards. Or, yes, or if not, and um, th that had pleased us, but it was very difficult uh, to, um, uh, to persuade the uh, black members of the board and uh, also some of the white members of that board, uh, that they ought to defend free speech uh, for the, uh, the Klan. I relied um, heavily in that period on a black board member of the ACLU from Atlanta uh, who um, represented the national ACLU in going to talk uh, to branches of the organization that were um, uh, reluctant to uh, to defend uh, free speech for the Klan. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure I mentioned this in the book, I don't think so, but uh, one of the, uh, the attorneys who had worked for the ACLU when uh, I first joined the staff uh, was Eleanor Holmes Norton, yep. uh, who in uh, the recent period has been the uh, the member of Congress uh, for the uh, the District of Columbia. She, she litigated Brandenburg, right? Not Brandenburg. Uh, she litigated a uh, a free speech on behalf of a racist organization in in Maryland. Oh, okay. Uh, the attorney who was involved in Brandenburg for us was uh, Norman Dawson. Okay. The uh, it's you mentioned the Mississippi chapter. And this goes back to my, my earlier question about this whole chapter you have in the book about struggles both within and without the organization um, bringing in um, allies within the free speech fold. In your book, you identified a struggle between the ACLU and this Mississippi chapter, but also the San Diego chapter. Um, the San Diego chapter was very strongly in favor of free speech, but they were part of the Southern California mm -hmm. uh, ACLU, which was based in Los Angeles. And it was essentially uh, a Los Angeles group uh, that was uh, reluctant in defending gotcha. free speech for the, the Klan. And the San Diego group eventually split from the Southern California branch and created its own branch uh, of the, uh, the ACLU. And that free speech dispute at that time had uh, a significant part in that. Yeah, but it speaks to this larger issue that you talk about in the book over whether the organization or a organization's primary commitment should be to left-wing causes and politics or in politics or to civil liberties. What, what, what do you mean by this? And are civil liberties not a left-wing cause or is there... I don't think civil liberties um, should be characterized uh, on the basis of uh, one's place on the, uh, uh, the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I think there can be and should be uh, people on all parts of the uh, the political spectrum, 
who come together uh, in defense of civil liberties in terms of free speech, in terms of due process of law, in terms of equality uh, before the law. I think all those issues uh, can be issues on which people on different parts of the political spectrum will agree. Mm-hmm. And do you believe, so this, this tension that you talk about in the 70s, was that always there within the ACLU? And does that continue to be there amongst civil liberties organizations, not just the ACLU? I, I think it was uh, always there um, uh, within the ACLU. I think there was always um, uh, a certain amount of, of tension mm-hmm. uh, on those uh, issues. Um, just you know, to name uh, an example, um, not on a free speech uh, matter, but... Um, during World War II, there was the question of defending um, the Japanese Americans uh, when uh, internment was ordered. And there was a significant debate um, within the ACLU uh, at that time. Um, The left uh, was not very willing to defend uh, the, uh, the Japanese Americans. Uh, at that point. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had uh, entered the war. Um, uh, they saw him, therefore, as an ally of the, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, they didn't want to impede Roosevelt's uh, war policies. And so the left within the ACLU was reluctant uh, to defend uh, the rights of the uh, the Japanese Americans and to uh, uh, to challenge uh, Roosevelt's order uh, in that period, um, and so um, the 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 politics uh, of this cut in uh, sometimes unexpected ways, um, uh, but uh, there have been people in the ACLU throughout its history. Uh, who have uh, believed in uh, a a non-political approach uh, to civil liberties and across-the-board approach to civil liberties. Uh, They haven't always uh, prevailed. Um, uh, They haven't always prevailed immediately, uh, but they've generally prevailed over the the long term. Because in the 40s or 50s, I forget the specific date, you speak to an order or memorandum uh, forbidding avowed communist or alleged communist from leadership in the ACLU. Yes, now that that was a a, a different matter. What happened um, there uh, was um, during the the late 1930s, there had been uh, a a couple of communists um, on the ACLU board. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that period, um, before uh, the, um, the Soviet Union uh, was embroiled in, in the war uh, in Europe, uh, before Hitler invaded uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the general policy of the communists was to stay out of the war. And they had uh, opposed um, defending the, uh, the civil liberties of people who were in favor of the U.S. Uh, entering the war. Um, the most prominent communist uh, in the ACLU at that point had been uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Uh, and um, the, uh, the ACLU, uh, or some people within the ACLU, felt that it was inappropriate for Elizabeth Gurley Flynn to continue to serve 
um, on the ACLU board because her loyalty to the uh, the Communist Party line uh, took precedence uh, over her uh, defense of civil liberties. And so uh, there was a move to, um, to expel um, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn from the ACLU board. And that led to the adoption uh, of what was called the 1940 Resolution. And the 1940 Resolution uh, said that it was inappropriate uh, for persons who were committed to uh, communism, uh, fascism, or other forms of totalitarianism to serve on the ACLU staff uh, or on uh, the board of the, uh, the ACLU. And the 1940 resolution was adopted, and then there was a trial of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn within the board of the ACLU. And the board split evenly, and the chair cast the uh, deciding vote uh, to expel uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn from the uh, the board of the ACLU. So that was one of the, the most controversial moments in the history of the ACLU. Yeah, and that resolution, I'm assuming, was eventually repealed? It was eventually repealed. It was repealed in the 1970s. I, I want to take a step back to the Skokie case here and talk about some of the tactics that were used to go uh, after Frank Collin, right, was the leader, yes. of, the, leader of the march. Um, Specifically, the use of these so-called neutral standards to attack free speech or allegedly neutral standards, the, the insurance fees, mm-hmm. um, the, the policies they were aimed at, you know, offensive speech or, or something of that nature, and then also the heckler's veto. Uh, what did, you, did, you, did you see any of those as the most insidious or the, the best? What, were, what do you think was the best argument? You know, or the, because it seems like it's hard for me to characterize any of those as the best <laughs> argument. Because but frankly, like... I, I didn't. I saw all of them as ways of preventing uh, free speech uh, from from taking place. And it seemed to me that one had to um, knock down every one uh, of those arguments. It seemed like you were reading the book. It seemed like you were playing whack-a-mole in a sense. It's as soon as they made. One argument, yes. you'd knock that down in court, then yes. you'd make another one, and you had to knock down that one down in court. Uh, but what do you say to this heckler's veto argument? Uh, you you uh, you quote a man, uh, Mr. Goldstein, in the in the book, and he says, and you say that he did not intend to use violence, um, but he did not know if he could control himself when he saw the swastika, and would not promise that he would refrain from attacking attacking Colin. I I bring that up because I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but just Yesterday, um, Sunday, June 2026, 20, there was a story in the New York Times about uh, these Nazis who were marching on the Capitol in Sacramento, California, and, mm-hmm. and seven people were stabbed, nine were hospitalized, um, and this is just a couple of months after there was another violent interaction between Klan's marchers and counter-protesters. The details are still fuzzy, but I was following this conversation about this on Twitter, and you saw a lot of arguments to this heckler's veto that you know the Nazis got what was coming to them. How could you know the police shouldn't have let this happen because they knew what was going to happen in the form of violence? There was a there was one tweet that said, "Being tolerant to literal Nazis doesn't ever end well." Ask Weimar Germany about it, and you address that that point in your book as well. Um, another tweet that I saw was someone who believes in rights without historicism, without context, positions power against the oppressed. Um, 
and they put rights in quotation marks when they said that. So what's your response to this this heckler's veto argument? And this 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 story shows that the, this conversation is still happening yeah, even forty my, years later. My view of it is that if you have notice um, of a demonstration, um, then uh, it is um, entirely possible to have a sufficient um, police presence uh, so as to avoid uh, violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's uh, somewhat different uh, if uh, a demonstration takes place uh, spontaneously and uh, there is no possibility of having the the law enforcement uh, presence. Under those circumstances, I think you can uh, assign uh, more of the blame uh, to those who may be uh, engaged in, in some kind of uh, provocation. Mm-hmm. But where you have notice uh, of a march, uh, as you did in the, uh, the Skokie case, I don't know the facts of the, uh, the Sacramento matter, but where you have notice of it, um, the, the police uh, can be uh, present and, and can uh, avoid that kind of um, uh, of violence. And you talk in your book about how in some ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is sort of what these neo-Nazis are looking for, is this sort of controversy. Um. Well, they wanted to, uh, to attract attention. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out in the book that when they finally uh, were permitted to march in Skokie, uh, they never turned up. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were simply no-shows. Uh, they did thereafter hold a demonstration in Marquette Park, and then the uh, the little group of Chicago Nazis seemed to uh, dissolve and wasn't heard from again. I think it speaks to the even-handedness of the ACLU's approach in those years when they, they did eventually mar- march on Marquette Park. You talk about how there's a group of anti-Nazi protesters yes. who the police prevented from getting in, and then yes. the ACLU came to their defense. Yes. Um, you also talk about one of your takeaways at the end of the book is that this gave the, the censorship efforts, both on the on behalf of Chicago and, and the Skokie local governments, gave Frank Collin and his small group 15 months of, 16 yes. months of, of free publicity. But as you point out, not one new adherent, yes. it seems. Uh, they lost out in the marketplace of ideas. I want to I take a step back and just learn a little bit more about what got you interested in civil liberties work. Was oh, it wow. your early experience with tyranny or was it you know, something I'm sure that you don't speak about it in the book, so I'm just no, curious. Look, I'm, I'm sure that my early uh, experience had a, a big role. Uh, I would say that um, my um, coming to the United States uh, from England and the period uh, that I came uh, played a, a big part. Um, I came uh, to the United States uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, and a couple of years after that, um, I went to, uh, to high school. Um, my years in high school were 1950 to, uh, to 1954 which was exactly the, uh, the four-year period in which uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy uh, was at its height. Uh, McCarthy um, declined um, after the um, Army McCarthy hearings of May-June 1954, and I graduated from high school in June uh, 1954. But in the years that I was in high school, McCarthy and McCarthyism uh, were the uh, the most important political issue uh, 
uh, in the United States. And even as a high school student, I was caught up in debates um, uh, over that. We had in the high school I attended, Stuyvesant High School in New York City, um, we had a history club and I became the president of the history club and invited speakers who, uh, who debated um, the issues involving McCarthyism. And then I went to, uh, to college starting in September of 1954. And I would say that there were three um, political matters that were significant um, during the, uh, the period that I was in college, which uh, shaped my, um, my subsequent career. Um, in January 1955, a few months after I started college, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott uh, took place, led by Martin Luther King. And that precipitated me into uh, concerns about uh, racial equality. And then uh, in 1956, uh, my uh, second year um, uh, in college, or actually I was in, into my junior year, uh, there was the Soviet crushing of the Hungarian Revolution. And that was another uh, major uh, factor for me and uh, in some way uh, precipitated my involvement in international uh, human rights. And then another factor in that period is that left over from the McCarthy period, there were speaker bans on college campuses. Yep. Um, uh, communists uh, were not allowed to speak uh, on college campuses. Uh, a man named Buell Gallagher was then the president of the City College of New York, and Buell Gallagher prohibited uh, communists from speaking at the, uh, the City College of New York. When the Hungarian Revolution took place in 1956, one of the things that interested me as a college student uh, was that the man who was then the editor of the Communist Party newspaper, The Daily Worker, a man named J John Gates, published an editorial in the, in the Daily Worker saying that American communists should free themselves from control by the Soviet Union and should denounce um, what the Soviets had done with respect to the Hungarian Revolution. And I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Um, and so uh, I went to see Mr. Gates at the offices of the Daily Worker. You, and you it, just wrote to him after you read that? Yes, and I, I invited him to come to speak at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And I organized a student group um, uh, to sponsor it. And I talked to the administration. And the administration had no difficulty with a communist speaking on the, uh, the Cornell campus. I got a number of prominent faculty members to serve as faculty advisors, and I got critics of the, uh, the Communist Party to speak at the same uh, forum. Uh -huh. um, but I wanted to challenge or I wanted to show opposition to the, uh, the speaker ban um, uh, at uh, Cornell. And other students did this at other universities uh, around the United States then to show that they weren't going along with, uh, with speaker bans. So those three things, the Montgomery bus boycott, the Hungarian Revolution, the speaker bans, were the, the things that uh, sort of framed my um, political development uh, during my years at college. And I think of everything that I've been engaged in since uh, 
as having been uh, concerned with the same uh, issues that I was concerned with at that moment. Oh, absolutely. And that's fascinating to hear, actually, because, of course, we at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education do free speech on campus work. And one of the things we've seen in recent years is not the widespread speaker bans, but on a few campuses you see presidents of universities telling students that they can't invite a specific speaker to campus because of their views on race or sex or any number of issues. And it always backfires because there's always, the press has always been very good about free speech issues in our experience. Uh, It creates a sort of Streisand effect where more people end up hearing about those views as a result of the ban. And you talk in your book, and this is just a fascinating anecdote and ties into what you were just saying about how Hitler was banned from speaking on campus in Bavaria. Uh, And Goebbels used that to their advantage. Yes. Why is this man of two billion people in the world forbidden to speak? And the ban eventually was was rescinded and yes. he, he, was, he was allowed to speak. But I, you talk about, why, you, I mentioned this earlier, you talk about the Weimar uh, yes. Republic. What people, the, the, that one person on Twitter earlier talked about how the Weimar Republic was responsible in part for bringing Hitler to power. And what you say it wasn't a free speech issue. It wasn't Hitler who won out in the marketplace of ideas, but he used something else called political violence. Yes. No, look, there were a very large number of political murders uh, during the, uh, the Weimar period. Uh, probably the, uh, the single most uh, prominent political murder uh, was that of a man named uh, Walter Rathenau. Walter Rathenau uh, was uh, an intellectual uh, in uh, Germany, the uh, heir to a large uh, department store fortune, mm-hmm. uh, but he was also foreign minister uh, of, of Germany. And uh, he was murdered. And um, murders like that uh, were often uh, not punished or punished by um, ridiculously low um, uh, prison sentences. And when you create an atmosphere or allow an atmosphere to develop where hundreds of political murders can take place uh, without uh, significant punishment, the state loses uh, all credibility. The state uh, loses uh, all authority and um, violent um, uh, groups uh, such as the, uh, the Nazis uh, can thrive uh, under uh, those circumstances. And uh, it seemed to me that the, uh, the failure to, uh, to act um, effectively against political murder was um, the, uh, the real uh, shortcoming of the Weimar Republic and the, uh, the downfall of democracy in, in Germany. And then when... Hitler did get into power, he instituted speech codes, which you which you talk yes. about in your book, prohibiting pretty much any form of dissent. Yes. Uh, so they walked through the door and then closed it. You, could, you couldn't have anticipated this, and I know you've written about this before. Uh, your book came out in 1979, but Bosnia and Rwanda. Yes. Uh, what, what do you say about those situations? Because those are the modern examples. Right. Uh, what, what I say is the following, that... Um, it's one thing to defend freedom of speech um, in circumstances in which, uh, by and large, um, free speech prevails. But if you take a situation like Rwanda, 
um, where um, there was not uh, free speech, where uh, the Rwandan government essentially did not allow um, radio stations uh, to be um, licensed or to operate if they op offered uh, certain points of view, um, but then um, gave its blessings to a radio station uh, which fomented um, uh, hatred uh, and which incited um, uh, violence. It's hard to defend that radio station on free speech grounds when it has been given uh, a kind of exclusive um, uh, opportunity to, uh, to broadcast uh, to the, uh, the Rwandan population. In a sense, uh, then, the radio station is merely uh, carrying out uh, government policy uh, in circumstances of that sort. So I could not defend um, uh, the, uh, the radio station uh, which uh, incited the, uh, the genocide on free speech grounds where it had that exclusive uh, ability to, um, to broadcast. Uh, in the case of the Rwandan radio station, it actually went beyond uh, incitement. Uh, it even went uh, to the point of organizing uh, the genocide. It said uh, there are a hundred uh, Tutsis who are uh, taking shelter in so-and-so church, you know, go get them. Um, and um, uh, in that fashion, uh, played a, uh, a direct role uh, in the genocide. It was not as if it was one point of view being heard uh, along with other points of view or opposing uh, points of view engaged in some kind of free speech debate. The Bosnian situation was was similar. It wasn't quite as extreme uh, as the, uh, the the Rwandan situation, but it was also the case uh, that Milosevic uh, did not allow um, opposition uh, voices to be heard. There was a radio station uh, which could not be heard uh, beyond the uh, the city of Belgrade, uh, which was a critic of Milosevic and a critic of those policies. But in terms of any radio station that could broadcast on a national basis, or in terms of television um, on a national basis, uh, it was all um, uh, inciting the, uh, the violence that, uh, that subsequently took place. So going back to the Skokie case, the Supreme Court gave them the go-ahead, or it didn't accept the Seventh Circuit's just... Essentially, this was decided uh, at the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals yeah. level. The Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Declined to hear the case. So, you know, even it's been four years since yes. that happened, and the case is still very much on the public's consciousness. I mentioned in the introduction that when people reference the breadth of free speech protection in the United States, they talk about the Nazis of Scotland. And, and it's the symbolic value of the case mm -hmm. that uh, seems to me its importance uh, from a free speech standpoint, not its legal yes. um, significance as such. Mm -hmm. And is there any you know, lessons that you take away from that era, or is there anything within the book yeah, that you've changed your mind about. I mean, it has been a long time. No, I, I have not changed my mind uh, about this. Um, I did write about the, uh, the Rwanda and Bosnia matters in another book that I published much later on and tried to, uh, to explain uh, in um, the, uh, the other book 
why I considered the uh, the principles um, uh, that were uh, important in the uh, the Skokie case still to be applicable, but not to apply in the Bosnian and Rwandan cases because of the uh, very different factual circumstances. Those, those radio stations, for example, had the monopoly on the marketplace right. of ideas. There was no marketplace right. of ideas. Well, I always end um, my conversations with guests with a couple of a couple of general questions, and one of them is: Do you have a first? Do you have a free speech hero? Someone who, when you, you're analyzing these issues, you always think back to. Um, well, uh, I, I could name uh, a couple of uh, free speech uh, heroes. Uh, <laughs> I suppose uh, the earliest one is uh, John Lilburn who was the, uh, the 17th century uh, leveler um, who um, in some ways uh, anticipated a lot of the um, uh, more recent debates over free speech and other uh, aspects of, of civil liberties and uh, was um, rather substantially punished uh, during that period for his uh, championship of, of freedom of speech. Um, I also um, think of, of someone um, uh, I knew uh, and admired uh, greatly. Um, Norman Thomas had been the, uh, the Socialist Party candidate uh, for president um, uh, six times up till uh, 1948. Um, and he had also been one of the, uh, the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union. He was an antagonist of uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn when she uh, tried to, uh, to prevent uh, the ACLU from uh, defending uh, free speech uh, for everyone. Um, uh, I got to know uh, Norman Thomas when uh, I was about 19 years old um, and uh, knew him uh, until his death uh, about uh, 20 years uh, after that and um, greatly admired him as a, a defender of civil liberties. Although he was a Socialist Party uh, candidate for president, he never seemed to speak very much about socialist uh, ideas. He always seemed to speak about civil liberties uh, issues. Uh, and um, he was a, uh, an extraordinarily effective public speaker, among other things and a man who used humor um, uh, extremely well. Uh, and he was a, a hero of mine. I, you speak back to the founding of the ACLU, and I find it fascinating and inspiring that the narrow focus the ACLU had at the beginning. You talk about, uh, in your book, the first annual report was the fight for free speech, or the first the founding documents was the fight for free speech, and the next year it was a year's fight for free speech. Uh, when, when, just as an aside, when did that, the, the mission of the ACLU expand? You know, it had expanded quite a bit. It expanded by the time you got there. Um, over time, and yeah. it expanded more um, uh, after uh, I got there. In the sense that we took civil liberties into um, circumstances uh, where uh, civil liberties had not been defended previously, into schools, uh, into the armed forces, uh, into uh, closed institutions such as prisons. Uh, so we, we expanded the, uh, the, the mandate of the, the ACLU, but I think over time uh, it expanded. Uh, when the ACLU started, 
there was a kind of division of labor with the NAACP. Uh, the ACLU um, uh, was founded in 1920. It grew out of a World War I organization, the Civil Liberties uh, Bureau. The NAACP had started in 1909, some years before the ACLU. And so the, the NAACP had um, basically dealt with racial equality and, and the ACLU dealt with, um, with freedom of speech and then uh, due process of law. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, the ACLU then began to take on the, uh, the racial equality issues. Yeah. It took on uh, the rights of women. It took on the rights of gays. Uh, it took on uh, a large uh, range of, uh, of issues and became the organization that it is today. Well, you sort of won a lot of the free speech battles. I mean, free speech was in dire straits when the ACLU was founded. Yes. And you talk about, by the time you get to Skokie, these free speech cases, many of them are paper cases, as yes. you call them, uh, where it doesn't take much yes. resources from the ACLU, yes. for example, to litigate them. Right. That's one of the arguments they used to shut down those who said, well, you shouldn't be giving your resources right. to the Nazis. Well, it doesn't take much of our resources. Yes. To them. But um, getting back to my, my uh, generic questions at the end, favorite book? on these issues? Favorite book uh, on these issues. Um, I liked uh, very much um, Thomas Emerson's uh, book, The System of Freedom of Expression. Uh, I thought that it was um, a very good, um, comprehensive uh, work on, on freedom of speech. Um, there's a less well-known book by um, a man named Franklin Heyman uh, on uh, free speech, um, which I uh, always thought of uh, very highly. Mm -hmm. uh, the most recent book on free speech is the uh, the book by the uh, the British um, uh, essayist uh, Timothy Garton Ash uh, has just written a book, and he tries to. Um, uh, set forth ten principles of, uh, of freedom of speech, and in general, I like his uh, principles. I tried to persuade him to add a couple uh, to his. <laughs> I saw list. you do a YouTube video with it. You did a video interview with him, uh, and um, I, I wasn't successful in getting him <laughs> to uh, uh, to do that. Well, but I think a it's right a good nice book. round number, so <laughs> you probably wanted to. Keep I, it. I think it's a good book. Yeah, um, and then. You know, what do you see as the greatest threat to free speech today? A lot of the arguments to go after free speech are the same arguments they, that censors uh, were using hundreds of years ago. Um, but the threats sort of shift in their intensity. What do you see as no, the greatest and, threat? And to a certain extent, uh, I worry about uh, political correctness as uh, a threat to, uh, to freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. uh, that is... Um, uh, I'm uh, a, a believer in um, uh, equality, equality uh, on the basis of race, equality on the basis of uh, gender, and, and so forth. But yeah, your I worry a testament to that. Hmm? Your career is a testament to that. But uh, but I, I worry uh, that sometimes um, the uh, the people who are um, concerned with those issues. Um, uh, seek to restrict uh, speech by uh, antagonists uh, of, of those positions. And I think it's important uh, to defend free speech 
uh, in all circumstances. Uh, there shouldn't be any exceptions. And that goes back sort of to the even the debate you had within the ACLU in the 70s regarding yes. you know, progressive left-wing causes yes. and civil liberties yes. causes. And you don't see those two in conflict? I don't see them uh, in, in conflict. Um, I, I always used to um, enjoy uh, an attack uh, on my approach uh, by the National Lawyers Guild, yep. uh, which I think I quote in the book, you talk uh, about it at length, yes. Yeah, uh, where uh, they accused me of poisonous even-handedness. Mm -hmm. And it was such a wonderful phrase. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't have invented uh, that phrase. Um, but um, I, I plead guilty to it. And you, the United States, and I don't know if you talk about this in your book, but it holds a, a bit of a unique position in the world uh, as a defender of free speech. Uh, you, you're... The, you know, the last few decades of your career you spent defending civil rights, civil liberties across the world, uh, not just within the United States. What do you see as the United States' role or well, position? You know, I, I teach uh, a course on, on human rights in Paris, and one of the things I try to do uh, with my students is to uh, explain the, the differences between the American approach to rights uh, and the European uh, approach to rights, or you might say even the, uh, the global uh, approach to rights. And I, I'd say the difference uh, can be summarized as far as free speech is concerned in, in this uh, way, uh, that elsewhere in the world, uh, the crucial aspect of speech is the content of the speech. And in the United States, it is the context uh, of the speech. Uh, that is, uh, in a lynch mob atmosphere, um, the speaker can't uh, be protected by saying, you know, there's a black, go get him. Mm -hmm. um, that in that lynch mob atmosphere, um, that speaker is directly uh, precipitating the, um, the violence. Um, in uh, the European approach or the, um, uh, the global approach, uh, it is the content. It is um, uh, what the, um, uh, the speaker actually says rather than the circumstances um, in which it is said. And I do think that the, uh, the American context uh, approach um, is, uh, from my standpoint, more protective uh, of rights and uh, a better approach than the, the content-based approach. I think that uh, the law should always be content neutral, mm -hmm. but it can say uh, that there are contextual uh, questions, and Rwanda and Bosnia could be examples of contextual um, questions, um, which um, do uh, require some uh, modification of, of what one will defend. Yeah, and do your students in Europe understand this? Do they, do they get this American approach as it seems so foreign to them? Um, it's a question that is debated, but I think they, they get the idea. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I also point out that the, uh, the crucial concept in, American, um, in the American approach to rights is the concept of liberty. And the crucial concept in the European approach tonight to rights is the concept of dignity. Uh, and liberty and dignity um, overlap to an extent, 
but they also can come into conflict with each other to a certain extent. And so I try to, uh, to explain um, the, uh, the consequences of a liberty approach and the consequences of a dig dignity approach. And I actually uh, prefer some combination of liberty and dignity as a way of uh, protecting rights. Were you, were you teaching this course during the Charlie Hebdo attacks, for example? Yes, uh, I wasn't there uh, at that particular moment. That took place in January and my courses each fall, so it, my course had ended uh, by the time the, uh, the attack took place. Yeah. But had that, not, had that shaped, uh, did, do you notice a difference between your students' approach to these issues before that event or and after that, or has it sort of remained this dignity versus liberty or dignity overlapping with the Charlie Hebdo affair clearly had uh, an important um, uh, effect uh, on, on my students. I'm not sure, though, that it, it shifted their, their thinking on those issues. Well, Arye, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know you've got other things to do besides talk to me, but uh, it was really fascinating. I think it's going to be very fascinating. Oh, and I've enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah, Thank you. And like I said, we've, we've been talking about your book with many different thinkers um, and attorneys um, over the past couple of weeks, and it's nice to finally round it out with, with the man himself. Right. Thank you very much. That was Arye Muir. Don't forget to pick up Arye's book, Defending My Enemy, American Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, and the Risks of Freedom. It is available on Amazon.com and should be required reading for anyone interested in the First Amendment and its history. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating us and posting a review at iTunes or wherever else you download your podcasts. It's the easiest thing you can do to help us get more ears on the show. In the meantime, thanks for listening.